Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. On the border with Ukraine. The might of Russian military power is massed. Over 100,000 soldiers are standing ready, armed with tanks, guns, and missiles. But Vladimir Putin has another weapon in his arsenal that could threaten not just Ukraine, but all of Europe. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Vijay Vaidiswaran, The Economist's Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor. And today we're asking, what happens if Russia turns off the gas? The least one can say is that Europe is in an unusually vulnerable position. We're going in with tight energy markets. You know, if you're going to make a move, they have a lot of high cards right now. I mean, listen, everyone's going to get more revenues, but it's going to be temporary. I think the long-term game is everybody loses. The supply of energy has been the lifeblood of the relationship between Russia and Europe for decades. For Willy Brandt, West German chancellor from the late 1960s, pipes carrying gas were bridges for building trust with the Soviet Union. New pipelines were such a potent symbol of increasing reliance on Moscow that a succession of presidents from JFK to Reagan all the way to Donald Trump have tried to derail them. Their efforts have been remarkably unsuccessful. In normal times, Russia provides Europe with over a third of its natural gas. But in recent months, Russia has reduced that flow. And as tensions rise over Ukraine, Europe faces a burning question. How reliable is its biggest supplier? Once a war begins, what happens then? All plans go out the window. Daniel Jurgen is a Pulitzer Prize-winning energy historian with whom I've been discussing these issues for two decades. He's vice president of IHS Market, a research firm, and the author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. I think if there's a conflict in Ukraine, you'll begin, you'll get a panic. The oil market is already very tight. Russia is one of the big three oil producers. Its main market, uh, export market, is Europe, and prices will jump immediately. People think of Russia's Gazprom as merely a gas giant, as that's the leverage it has over Ukraine and Europe. But Dan emphasizes that oil and gas markets are inextricably linked. Oil and gas, of course, are, are related. They're really produced mostly by the same companies around the world. Gazprom is also an oil producer through its uh, very large subsidiary called Gazprom Neft. And Russia is basically, although Putin once said he doesn't want to think of Russia that way, it is an energy superpower in terms of oil, in terms of natural gas, and in terms of coal. 
Although oil demand is roaring back to pre-pandemic levels, oil production is not keeping up. America's shale drillers have reined in their impulse to frack everything in sight. And many members of the OPEC plus cartel, which includes Russia, are struggling to meet increased production targets after the disruption of the pandemic. And if you have conflict, there'll be dislocations in the supply chains. We're living in a world of dislocated supply chains now, but it will really affect energy. And then there'll be the very big focus on natural gas. If Russia invades Ukraine, the immediate impact will be on Europe's gas markets. But the mere fear of war has already helped push the price of oil to a seven-year high. You know, it may be forgotten by some, but Europe is already in an energy crisis with gas prices as much as eight times higher than they were in the down year of 2020, electricity prices four times higher than the average prices of recent years. These high energy prices on top of supply chain disruptions are already making life difficult for producers of other commodities, from metals to foodstuffs. And so add a political crisis, add a war in Europe involving a nuclear-armed superpower, expect more disruptions. The conventional wisdom has long been that a complete shutdown of piped gas from Russia is unthinkable. Historically, Russia, and before that, the Soviet Union went out of the way to demonstrate that it was a reliable supplier, whatever happened. But here, you know, if Russia invades Washington, has promised, in coordination with the Europeans, massive sanctions of a kind never seen. And that in itself will disrupt uh, trade and payments. And then the question hangs over, does the supply of Russian gas get physically disrupted? Do the Russians pull back or still a substantial amount of Russian gas flows through Ukraine? Will that be disrupted by a war or by conflict? So those are the kind of uncertainties. And, you know, what people are doing is developing a very wide range of uh, scenarios and how to be prepared or how to be resilient. If there is an invasion of, of Ukraine, it's the end of the post-Cold War world and we're in a new era. A new energy era, too, because even at the height of the Cold War, the Soviet Union did not shut off gas exports. I think that would be very much a bad move on the Russians' part. The gas trade with Europe has been going on for a half century now. It goes back that far. Thane Gustafsson has spent his career analyzing this volatile relationship. He's a professor at Georgetown University, the author of books on both Russian gas and oil, and most recently of Klimat, Russia in the Age of Climate Change. The gas business was governed by the rules that were invented by the Dutch, Back in the 1960s, the so-called Groningen rules based on long-term contracts keyed to oil prices. It was very stable, and the Soviets were punctilious in observing the terms of the contracts with the Europeans. Uh, and it is an important business for Russia, clearly. It accounts for about 20% of its hydrocarbon export revenues. A gas business relies on trust. A pipeline business relies on trust. If trust disappears, then the business is doomed. And I think that would be very much present in the minds of Vladimir Putin, the Kremlin, and of course, Gazprom. But the economic logic that made the gas trade sacrosanct to the Soviets is changing. The European gas market has itself changed enormously uh, since, since those earlier days. The European Union has created a regulatory structure 
called the Gas and Power Directives. Those create a set of rules that Gazprom is now, although very unwillingly, obliged to play by. The Kremlin has not at all appreciated the imposition of those rules. And so there is a background of, shall we say, resentment that has built up that has, uh, I think, uh, intruded into the relationship. In addition to that, now climate change has come along. The ambitions of the Europeans to create a Green New Deal enforced by by border adjustment mechanisms, the so-called CBAM, that too has caused a great deal of anger and resentment inside Russia. And then lastly, there is Ukraine. So if the Kremlin were to uh, constrict or cut off the gas supply to Europe, the least one can say is that Europe is in an unusually vulnerable position. We have been here before. This would not be the first time Mr. Putin has turned off the taps to Europe over Ukraine. In the mid-2000s, disputes over gas prices between Russia and Ukraine became something of a winter tradition. Going into the winter of 2008, it looked like the neighbors were approaching agreement. The European Union was carefully staying out of it. But as 2009 dawned, the situation unraveled. Russia stopped the delivery of gas through the remaining entry point, Great Serga, at 7.45 this morning, local time. After a court in Kiev annulled an agreement intended to keep gas transiting to the European Union separate from the gas staying in Ukraine, Mr. Putin ordered Gazprom to reduce supplies by the amount he said Ukraine was stealing from Russia. And as such, Russia has also stopped exports through Ukraine to Europe. As attitudes hardened, Mr. Putin insisted that no gas at all should cross the border. His direct involvement made the dispute even more political. In the midst of a bitter cold snap, countries felt the effects immediately. As they shiver through these days, Bulgarians are paying the price for their total reliance on Russian gas. Bulgaria, Slovakia, and other parts of southeastern Europe were hit the hardest. But the cutoff hit 18 of the 27 member states, including Germany, France, Greece, and Italy. The European Union had no choice but to step in. If this transit does not go as normal, we will have a real problem, and we will have to take some conclusions, clarifying that we will no longer consider the supply from gas from Russia through Ukraine, a credible supply. After a week of negotiating, agreement seemed to have been reached. The deputy CEO of Gazprom announced that supply would restart on January 12th at precisely 10 p.m. Moscow time. Alas, 10 p.m. came and went, and nothing happened. Each side accused the other of blocking the gas supply. It took a further week of wrangling before a multi-party agreement with the European Union was reached, and the gas began to flow again. But while supplies to Europe through Ukraine resumed, the episode permanently undermined trust in the stability of that route. 
the lesson that was supposedly learned by Europe was that they needed more regasification terminals to accept liquefied natural gas cargoes from places other than Russia, and many were built. Whenever I want to know more about energy security, one of the first people I turn to is Amy Myers Jaffe. She's an energy guru at Tufts University, and her latest book is called Energy's Digital Future. 100% they're in better shape. A lot of work's been done. A lot of LNG capacity's gone in. Even Poland put in a, a LNG receiving terminal. And there's a lot of electricity trade today. So you see things like French nuclear power, you know, being traded across borders. You know, the other lesson that should have been learned uh, was that, you know, having natural gas inventories ahead of winter is very important. But, you know, it's been 10 years and sometimes we learn lessons and then we get kind of sleepy about it and we forget. And so it's true that if the Europe used all of its regas terminals to the maximum capacity, that would be equal to two thirds of all the gas that, co- you know, normally comes from Russia by pipeline. So they added a lot of capacity. They just weren't using it over the summer to refill inventories So inventories are at a record low, lower than they were, say, in 2010. And LNG imports to Europe are on the rise now. They're at an all-time high. But maybe it was a little late to have uh, started making those purchases. While there have been some efforts to diversify away from Russian gas, in an apparent contradiction, new pipeline projects bypassing Ukraine have actually reinforced Russia's energy relationship with Europe. Here's Thane Gustafsson again. The Russians have been having a continuous, continuing, rolling crisis with Ukraine over gas. And the reason for that is straightforward. It is simply that the Soviet gas industry, when it broke up, left the Ukrainians with the pipelines going through the transit and left Russia with the gas. And so the two sides have been arguing over the legacy Soviet rents ever since. So it's rent, rent, who's going to get the rent? The Russians tired of this game along about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, and evidently made the decision to start bypassing Ukraine. So the first of those was the so-called Blue Stream pipeline from Russia to Turkey, and now through something called Turk Stream into Europe. There are now five new pipelines that bypass Ukraine. The uh, much discussed Nord Stream 2 is in fact the last and would finish the job. Effectively, the Russians are putting Ukraine out of the gas transit business. In Germany, one camp agrees with Russia that Nord Stream 2 would help stabilize the flow of gas. But another camp in Germany, along with America and some European countries, insists that it's a dangerous increase in European dependence on Russia. And for Ukraine, losing the transit trade would be a damaging hit to revenue. Amy Myers Jaffe. That project now is stalled. It faced different hurdles from different countries. Uh, Now it's facing, quote unquote, regulatory problems in Germany itself. And indeed, let's remember that Germany is one of the countries that decided not to add an LNG regasification receiving terminal. Other countries that accept pipeline gas from Russia or other countries uh, still put in 
LNG receiving terminals, you know, sort of like it's an insurance policy, backup policy. You can buy the LNG if you can't access pipeline gas. And so, you know, there are these decisions that were made historically uh, that now come to roost. And one of the big natural gas analysts uh, from S&P Global tweeted that it's a very interesting coincidence that the decrease in Russian gas flows to Europe this year, which is about 150 million cubic meters per day, is exactly the capacity rating of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So maybe that's a little bit of a, you know, unsubtle message from the Russians. But through the noise over Nord Stream 2, Fain Gustafsson reminds us that the current standoff is about much more than gas. It is a contest between two visions, where the question is, whose sphere of influence is Ukraine going to belong in? And the difficulty there is that Ukraine, in fact, does belong to both worlds. So the the question is, in fact, an acute one. Going back to the early 2000s, practically from the moment he came into power, Putin has put Ukraine right at the front of his desk. He negotiated for years with the former Ukrainian president, Leonid Kuchma, and thought that he has established a strong political position over the succession. Then came the Orange Revolution. When the Orange Revolution failed, Putin renewed his efforts with the next president of Ukraine, Yanukovych, Viktor Yanukovych, But once again, the effort failed. On both occasions, Putin thought he had Ukraine within his grasp, and both times it has escaped from his grasp. Putin must be a very frustrated man. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Europe's efforts to diversify its sources of energy mean that in the event of a shutdown today, it would probably avoid freezing. But it would have to draw down on its gas reserves, find supplies elsewhere, and boost other forms of power. And it would push energy prices even higher. So how can the continent avoid this situation in future? What would it take to wean Europe off Russian gas? I asked Amy Myers Jaffe. In a highly electrified world where 50% of our energy is going to come in the form of electricity and that electricity could be generated more domestically or more regionally, one would hope that the geopolitics of coercion using energy would be reduced. Um, But, you know, we got a long way to go. So I think one thing would be, of course, a bigger commitment to paying up for contracts for LNG, right? So I'm going to pay some kind of rate 
to make sure that I have a long-term contract for LNG and not rely on uh, flexing to the spot market. That would be one thing. I think that actually countries will double down on increasing the pace of renewable energy, not the opposite, despite whatever Russia or Saudi Arabia or other countries have in their head. You see countries like Italy thinking of themselves as a solar energy hub with North Africa or a hydrogen producing and transporting hub for green energy. You see a big push in deep water wind in Europe. Uh, Even Germany is finally getting around to talking about why it needs to really increase its deep water wind. So it's highly possible. You pick up on an interesting point that if uh, one views Russia's hydrocarbons as a, an asset with dwindling value in future, in part because Europe is going to decarbonize, then the value of that Russian piped gas to Europe would dwindle quickly over the next decade, presumably. That must be part of the calculation. The point of maximum leverage is now. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think this could be the last hurrah in the sense that over time, you know, this COVID thing presented this one-time opportunity where you have soaring demand and, and maximum leverage because of it. But, you know, I think the lesson even of as recently as 2014, which some officials in the Gulf really recognized, is every time this happens, the pace of inventions that we come up with to eradicate the oil intensity of the global economy or the energy intensity of the global economy, it becomes better. So, you know, one solution, as they've experimented with in, in Australia, and a few other locations, you can, everybody could have a battery storage device in their home that's a little bit larger than their daily demand. And so you can aggregate all those excess capacities and all those batteries. So they function literally like a power station to offset a heat wave or a Russian cutoff of gas. I mean, digital solutions are going to play a big role and we're just sort of getting started. I take your point when there's an aggressive action like what's happening now or with OPEC, we see a response. And in, in that case, you talk about the innovation response. But we've also seen previously, for example, the shale response, which was a dirty response. It yes, wasn't clean. But that was also a digital technology response. But it was also innovation. Agreed. Do you think if Russia were to overplay its hand in this crisis, that in fact, other OPEC or other energy powers that rely on oil and gas might benefit? Do you see a, another energy super major becoming a beneficiary? I mean, listen, everyone's going to get more revenues, but it's going to be temporary. I think the long-term game is everybody loses. Because once I see that relying on imported oil or imported gas is a bad thing, then I'm going to want to use more of these digital technologies to get rid of that. The long trajectory is, you know, you've got people up day and night in Silicon Valley coming up with ways to lower emissions through appliances. And, you know, you know, when OPEC acts in a certain way or Russia acts in a certain way, they just hasten the future. As one of The Economist's resident innovation enthusiasts, I'm beguiled by Amy's argument. I want that future to arrive. But the cold hard truth is that for now, gas is still very much a part of the energy reality. Gas is a crucial part of many countries' plans for decarbonizing their energy systems. Europe is in the process of debating whether gas belongs in its taxonomy as an acceptable green transition fuel. So I asked Thane Gustafsson, if we were to see the weaponization of gas during this crisis, what would be the long-term impact on Gazprom and on Russia's position as an energy superpower? If you look at the fundamentals, 
the case for natural gas to mid-century remains very strong. And indeed, most scenarios envision a in continued increase in natural gas consumption. One central fact about Gazprom is that 70% of their production goes to feed the domestic market inside Russia. And it is absolutely essential. One can think of the Russian economy as being, in many respects, a gas-fired economy, certainly in power supply for two-thirds of the Russian territory until you get to the east where they do nuclear and coal. So Gazprom's future in that respect is secure. On the future of, of gas exports, Putin declares that the future of natural gas is LNG. And Gazprom is not an L has, has not been, is not now an LNG company. Their DNA is pipelines. And the player that does LNG in Russia is a very interesting new creation called Novatech, which is actually a private sector company run by a private sector entrepreneur with lots of support from the Russian state, of course, but which has developed LNG capability and the target is Asia. You mentioned Asia. What do you think China, which has been consuming increasing amounts of Russian gas, but very cautiously, uh, is likely to take away from any crisis in Ukraine that disrupts supplies? What lessons would Chinese leaders take from that? Hmm. That is a very timely question, because on February 4th, Vladimir Putin will be in Beijing. And it's fascinating to imagine what the conversation might be like between clearly an angry Putin, but a possibly much calmer Xi Jinping over the prospect of what to do next. The long term for the Chinese is very definitely to shut down coal. But gas is being brought in on a steady basis in two ways, by pipeline and by LNG. The pipeline comes from Eastern Russia. It is the so-called Power of Siberia pipeline, which ends up in Northeastern China. The LNG will be coming to Chinese regas facilities on the Southeastern coast. That creates the interesting picture as the pipeline gas marches its way down the Chinese coast from the Northeast and Russian LNG marches its way up the Chinese coast from the southeast. Sooner or later, Russian pipeline gas and Russian LNG will be competing with one another, probably around Shanghai. Some might think that if Vladimir Putin shows himself to be an unreliable energy supplier to Europe, that this would make other customers of Russian gas more skittish. Not necessarily, says Daniel Jurgen, the author of The New Map. He argues that any escalation in Ukraine could well bring Russia and China closer together. I think you have to see Russian exports of energy to China in a larger picture. Russia signed its big export deal with uh, China in 2014, just after sanctions were imposed for the annexation of Crimea. And over that time, of course, the trade has grown. Russia is developing a, an LNG export business uh, out of the Arctic, and China's the main market. What we see is that China buys energy from everybody. It's just signed some big contracts to buy LNG from the United States. But I think, Vijay, this is really a larger political question. I think that there's been an underestimation of the extent to which Russia and China have become aligned together 
in a common position, which is basically opposition to what they see as a U.S. and to a lesser degree, Western European-defined international order. And I think the U.S. and other countries will come in with massive sanctions, but Russia has a big back door, which is called China. Of course, Dan, the other energy superpower in the world is the United States, uh, which through its shale industry has become the world's largest exporter of LNG. And, and by the way, let me say that one reason that Vladimir Putin doesn't like U.S. shale, and I know that from personal experience, where he began shouting at me when I mentioned the word shale, he doesn't like shale for two reasons. One, it increases U.S. influence in the world. And two, for exactly this reason, shale is the basis of uh, U.S. LNG exports. It makes U.S. LNG competitive with Russian gas in Europe. So do you think there's a role that American LNG will play in alleviating this crisis? I think there's a role, but it's not a great role because the markets are already tight. Yes, Chinese companies may release uh, some LNG uh, cargoes that they've contracted for because they can make a lot of money doing so. And we'll see an effort to get more gas from other sources. But U.S. LNG is going, you know, full speed right now. There isn't a lot of extra capacity. Qatar doesn't have a lot of extra capacity. So we're going in to this situation with tight energy markets as it is. And that probably is something that, that Russia, that the Kremlin has taken into calculation saying, you know, if you're going to make a move, they have a lot of high cards right now. One last question for you, Dan. Looking further ahead, what do you think the lasting consequences are going to be? How, how will this redraw the global energy map? I think that there will be a renewed focus on stimulating investment in other parts of the world in terms of energy development, a greater focus on energy security, which already this Europe's current energy problems are highlighting, but it will take on a new and a much sharper geopolitical focus. I think it will also play into the energy transition. I think it would hasten Europe's efforts at diversification. Some will also see it as a reason to step up renewables moving away from gas. So you'll really, there'll really be a two-track response. One will be a focus on what you need to increase uh, supply elsewhere, and at the same time, an additional focus on energy transition. And I think it will mean that over time, there'll just be an effort to be less reliant on Russian gas. When the dust settles on the current energy crisis, Europe's politicians will have to reconcile the long-standing tension between energy security and the energy transition. How do you keep the lights on and prevent granny from freezing at the same time that you ambitiously replace a dirty energy system with a green one? In the short term, it seems likely that the voices arguing for security first will gain the upper hand. This means natural gas isn't going away soon even if Europe moves aggressively to reduce imports from Russia. It'll probably be supplemented by more coal and nuclear power, as well as imports of LNG. But this response risks undermining Europe's urgent push for decarbonization. It has to go hand in hand with more innovative responses that enable a rapid scale-up of clean energy. So rather than just doubling down on the dirty, Europe should embrace the future of energy through diversification, digitalization, decentralization, and decarbonization. Our thanks to Thane Gustafsson, 
Amy Myers Jaffe, and Daniel Jurgen. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. To follow all our coverage as the situation in Ukraine evolves, subscribe to The Economist. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes for this episode. The producer is Amika Shortino Nolan. Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer. And the editor is Sandresh Mueli. I'm Vijay Vaitiswaran, and this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.